0: Join us on the Steps of 36, a question and answer conversation that crosses thresholds into the histories, lives, influences and stories of the person and figure behind their work. A podcast by RAA at the Architectural Association. In this episode, we are
1: joined by Shahed Salim.
0: So welcome to On the Steps of 36, uh, a place where we often have informal but important conversations both within the school and beyond. Thank you Shahid for joining us today and uh, are you ready to answer some questions?
1: I am, yeah. Let's do it.
0: Great. So to start with, what is your full name and date of birth?
1: My name is Shahid Salim and my date of birth is the 29th of December 1971.
0: Oh, almost 1972. Almost. At
1: the end of almost, yeah, yeah.
0: And did you ever have a nickname or do you still?
1: Well, when I was um, young, uh, I had a nickname which was Titch. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> which probably finished around, I don't know, it must have been a kind of a teenager ish by the time uh, uh, it sort of stopped. And it was just basically, you know, like really the friends that I grew up with kind of called me, that. and some, you know, family and things like that. I, was, I, I guess I was small.
0: Does And does anyone still call you that?
1: No I mean there's kind of every now and again there's some of the um, like almost I'd say they're cousins but they're kind of like very good family friends that we grew up with will, will sort of call me that.
0: And it probably locates you in a certain point in your life yeah, when someone does yeah, that like exactly. time travel.
1: Yeah exactly exactly yeah there's only like a handful of people that, that are, are from that time that can call me that yeah. yeah.
0: So in the spirit of time traveling maybe we'll go back to your childhood and uh, ask you where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in South East London in Bromley, um, which is where I was born. Uh, And I was born in the house that I lived in and grew up in actually. Oh, wow. Uh, And uh, yeah, so I grew up and and lived there until I moved out.
0: Nice. And uh, what was the kind of, what was the type of home you grew up in or that you lived in?
1: It was a suburban uh, detached house in, in a kind of nice leafy area. Oh, lovely, uh, with a big garden, and um, it was probably built around the fifties, I'd imagine, and uh, then it had sort of different bits and pieces added to. It. And the person who'd kind of lived there before my parents bought it, so they they bought it, um, I think in nineteen seventy, so you know before I was born, uh, had a kind of mock Tudor fetish I guess and there was a couple of rooms that had been sort of decked out <laughs> with these kind of timber ceiling joists and and a bit castle like so wow. yeah so we kind of came into that or I ca- I was born into that. If you that like. yeah, yeah
0: that sounds amazing. Do you still have any family that lives there?
1: Yeah my mum and sister are there now. Oh, okay. Yeah
0: great. Um, it sounds like an amazing place to grow up with all of the imaginative kind of games you could play in that kind of castle-like space?
1: Uh, yeah, sort of. I mean, it, it, it was, you know, it's a pretty sort of, I suppose, standard suburban house uh, with these kind of like funny rooms and, you know, some of the windows were kind of a little bit, uh, had this effect of this castle-like, sort of like these leaded windows and shields and things. Um, it was a very, uh, it's a very nice area, uh, but it it was also a very suburban area. So, you know, as as I got older, it was very much about getting on the train and coming into London kind of thing, was the sort of thing that made you feel uh, uh, a sense of relief.
0: Yeah, but that. Yeah. That, that makes sense, I guess. I remember <laughs> yeah. feeling the same way. So. Yeah,
1: yeah. But, you know, a good a good place to grow up for sure. Yeah.
0: yeah. So you mentioned that your mum and sisters lived there, but how many of you lived together when you were living there as a child?
1: So uh, my parents, mum dad, I had two sisters, and a brother, all older than me, so I was the youngest. And uh, the uh, older brother and sister were about sort of eight and nine years older than me, me and my, sis- my sister immediately older than me, and then there was me and my sister. So there were sort of two pairs of of a brother-sister, brother-sister kind of thing, with the gap in between. Oh. Yeah, so it was the four of us, but we always had people passing through and always had people staying with us as well, uh, usually from uh, India or Pakistan, like family um friends or family who were kind of studying in London and they would live with us or it was cousins or it was somebody part, you know tra- traveling or and so on so there's always people either staying for extended periods or or just stopping and moving on so it was there was a constant flow uh, that's why I, that's why I remember
0: yeah, which must be really nice. It's like I I remember like growing up, my grandmother's house was always a place full of life and I, I felt really safe and secure there because there was always like people coming and going and there's always like somebody new to meet and yeah. it just felt exciting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 Somebody new and also some kind of new sort of family connection that you never quite yeah, knew. because these families are so big, you <laughs> just never right. know who you're related to. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: And did you have a favourite t- t- uh, toy as a child?
1: Um, I used to... Um, I mean, I had kind of like, I don't know, I suppose the usual, I don't know, you know, Action Man and uh, some Makano. Sabutio was this football game that we used to play where you flick uh, flick um, players to hit a ball, Like actually physically flick physical players hit a physical ball, not like now, <laughs> where yeah. it's a kind of, you know, digital thing. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And um, I used to make a lot of things, I guess, as you'd expect. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: And uh, I guess like were there any foods that you refused to eat when you were young?
1: Uh, Not that I remember. I think I was a pretty compliant child actually. I'd (laughs) probably eat anything that was put in front of me. Um, Yeah.
0: I feel Uh, like that was the case with everyone for for, like for a long time (laughs) and now it's very much that you're, there's more of a license to be a picky eater. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's right. I can be more fussy now, yeah.
0: Um, and I guess like what was your most memorable holiday before leaving home?
1: Um, there was there were two holidays that I uh, remember quite vividly. One was when I was uh, about 10. Nine or ten, and we uh, had driven. No, we took a train to Madrid uh, because my dad used to work for British Rail. So back then, if you worked for British Rail here, you would get free train travel across Europe as for you and your family. Wow, you, know, you don't get. It's not like that anymore. So, so we take long train rides across Europe. So one of them was to Madrid, and then we got a car, and then we drove to the south of Spain to Malaga, and we stayed there. And I remember that driving through. Um, Driving through the kind of mountains, it must have been the Sierra Nevada. Now that I think about it, going down into the south and kind of being, you know, in the back of the car and going around the kind of mountains at night, and and then staying in this um, small house, uh, uh, quite a rural area in Malaga, and and um, yeah, so that that I, I remember quite vividly. Uh, and then another, another journey, we travelled across Europe by train to Istanbul. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, and then kind of back by train. So that was like a really um, a really sort of evocative sort of memory as well so they were all sort of like their journeys i think yeah yeah and also
0: i think going by train you can see so much more than flying and and so you just get to really like take in so many different landscapes and different Mm. places
1: yeah and then you sort of you sleep on the train as well i mean you obviously stay in hotels and things like that but you know there are these kind of journeys where you're sleep sleeping on the train and things like that so it's yeah so you see a lot
0: that sounds incredible Um,
1: mm. yeah no absolutely yeah quite quite strong memories. So, I mean, consequ- maybe because of that, I, I've tried every summer now to take the kids and get in the car and drive to the south of France or, you know, to Italy or whatever. So every summer we do try and do like a driving sort of tour of some sort.
0: I guess because you can really visualize space and territory in a different way when you actually, you physically feel your body kind of moving through it and you mm-hmm. see things changing. I mean, I, I guess like I, I I spent a lot of my childhood like flying between places, but you just feel very like geographically disconnected when you're flying. Yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, it's an embodied experience of space, actually. So, you know, if we drive from here to Marseille, which we often do, uh, you know what that actually feels like. You know, you cross the ground to do that. So you know what sort of, you know, a thousand miles feels like uh, physically. And I was always quite keen that they take the cross-channel ferry. So we used to, my wife used to be like, why can't we just take the tunnel? Because, you know, it's like, half an hour and you don't have to do this whole you know rigmarole and blah 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 and I was like no no, no we have to take the ferry. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's so that you know the kids know that we live on an island I think and they what an island means and it means you know there's a bit of water and you have to cross it and it takes that time and you know you need a ship to do it and it's yeah so I guess sort of the journey is quite a significant
0: yeah, thing. I guess on the topic of journeys and this kind of embodied experience of a journey, it kind of links quite nicely into the next set of questions about work. So uh, to start with, what would, how would you describe what it is that you do?
1: I do a range of things, actually. Um, so I do uh, practice architecture, so I have an architecture. So in that I um, build buildings or, or see buildings or parts of buildings or, or things built. In in some form or another, uh, and that's that's straight, fairly straightforward architectural practice that I teach as well. And uh, teaching for me is uh, is uh, it, it, it's almost like a type of practice actually. So it's it's a very um, it's not that I feel that I'm kind of pass in a position where I'm passing on some kind of knowledge. And I think that's the same for anyone who teaches really. But it's 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 a process by which one explores things um and then i am writing quite a lot at the moment still so i wrote uh, you know i wrote the book on about the mosque in britain and then i continue to ongoing writing projects whether it's chapters or articles or uh, bits of research and things like that and i've got some other sort of other kind of research projects that are also ongoing so i sort of see myself as um uh, all of them are kind of explorative in different different ways um and they have sort of slightly different Outputs they mean different things for other people. So, for example, architectural like practice means for somebody else it's like they get the house or the building or whatever it is that they want to use and live in, and for the for, in teaching the student that uh, you know the, their education or whatever out of it, um, or learn learning experience and so on. But f- but there's also something for me which co- connects all of those I think as well, which is uh, a kind of exploration in different ways.
0: Yeah, and there's a kind of feedback loop, I guess, between them, at least for you as a practitioner, in terms of like how the writing informs the architecture and, and informs the teaching and vice versa. But I guess maybe that's not as apparent to like all the different audiences for these outputs, but more in terms of how you shape your own practice.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, that takes, it is it feeling now that the different strands of work that I do are starting to have a, a more, Are being more interconnected whereas there are times where it feels like you're being pulled in quite different directions and and you know because they they don't necessarily overlap on a sort of day-to-day basis so if I'm doing a a, you know if I've got a job on site which is a I've got a job on site which is a cafe building at the moment for example and you know I have a conversation with a contractor about um how big the doors to the bin store need to be and how we need to shift the kitchen door over to in order to be able to get the size of the bin store in and then what the finished floor level is from the bin store to the outside so that's a type of conversation and that, that could then be followed immediately by a conversation about, you know, at, at, with a student about their project or, you know, kind of, or about a sort of research or writing project that's going. So, so, so it can feel quite schizophrenic, um, but, and, and like you're juggling really quite different things, But but gradually I think it's starting to feel that there is much more synergy between them.
0: Yeah, which is, I guess it's a nice evolution, I guess, as you get more comfortable in doing these things, but also, I guess, figuring out how they interrelate.
1: Yeah, yeah, figuring out. And I think also you, I mean, maybe you start to fill the gaps in with other bits of work as well to connect them, maybe.
0: Yeah, and I think also maybe having the confidence to say no to things that maybe don't reinforce these other types of practice. Yeah,
1: before. and that's always a kind of, you know, a sort of luxury to, be able to do <laughs> so, but now that I've sort of scaled my practice right down, so I've just reduced costs, you, you're, you're able to do it more. I think, yeah.
0: That's interesting. And did you always know that you wanted to, to do all these different things as a practice?
1: Um, not really. I mean, I suppose I started off uh, working in, you know, commercial practices, and then I I sort of ended up doing running my own practice just through people started asking me to do work for them. Uh, I started to do that and then, uh, ju- you know, then I found that I was just doing work f- myself for people and then that gradually sort of formalized into a kind of architectural practice as it were. And then, you know, I had the most people I had working for me was about five people sort of things. So it was always a small practice, but it was it was at that, at that point it felt like you have to keep work. You know, it's a size... It's, it, it, the size of that is that you have to keep work going. You have to keep work going through in order to keep the thing going. So you've got a ship that you need to keep afloat. <laughs> so then you have to keep working to keep you know the cash flow going. And then it's a funny sort of size because it felt almost like it, this either needs to be twelve people because then you can do the bigger jobs which you can earn more money from, and then it's a bit more comfortable. But uh, at that size, it's too small to to. to to do this larger work but it's too big to do the small work sort of thing you know the small work doesn't necessarily feed it so it was almost like this funny decision where it's like okay either I'm really going to go for it in terms of this I need to build this practice or think about is this what I really want to do and I guess I thought I'm not really um, in this to build a practice for the sake of building a practice I I think if there's a reason to do it then sure so that's when I sort of went more and I was writing the book at the time as well so then I kind of went also got more into the teaching, got a sort of teaching post,
0: um, yeah. Yeah, and in a way it feels like, I mean, a lot of your architecture is working with communities and then I think teaching is a lot about, I mean, teaching is a kind of form of that as well in terms of how you work with students. And then I think writing in terms of how you, a lot of that work then drives the kind of the, the text that you've written. I'm just curious as to like, what are the tools that you use in your in your practice or how you describe those?
1: Um. I think a lot of uh, a lot of. I think you're right. I mean, what I'm particularly interested in, and, and and you know, the kind of practice work that I've held onto and tried to develop further is the work with uh, communities, um, so faith, largely faith communities, but also work which involves consultation and and sort of participatory work with users of buildings and so on. So I've done a number of projects which are co- sometimes just consultation based projects with um, you know local authority or, or kind of other. Uh, organizations for example and so i suppose the tools are based around um finding out how to explore uh uh, the 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 kind of way in which people might inhabit and envisage the spaces that and architectures that they're going to be using and what your role is within uh that process of design um, and what the role of the kind of users is, uh, is and what they bring to the table and um so yeah, I don't know really. I suppose um yeah, tools tools that kind of facilitate that sort of
0: yeah. I guess help people imagine like what it is they want to co-create or create so that mm. they can have like a shared vision.
1: Yeah, yeah, and 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 things like um you know what what are the what kind of activities do you do with people to enable those conversations to happen? For example, like how does one have those conversations and find out things? I mean, I did I studied anthropology. Uh, as well sort of after I finished architecture I did a Master's in Anthropology so oh, wow. that kind of brings a, a sort of a, a whole series of a, a sensibility around um, kind of field working and sort of ethnography and so on so I think I probably used that quite a bit as well and I think my writing draws from a lot of the anthropological practice which is why a lot of my work is about um, how buildings are, are are kind of experienced and inhabited and how their meanings are constructed by Uh, um, people who are are sort of using them, how how, how the kind of meanings are multiple rather than just the meaning that the architect might give. So I suppose um, probably, yeah, um, anthropological tools, if anything.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. which is really fascinating because I've always felt like those two professions sit very closely together in terms of I think they can both benefit from each other's tools. So I think that's really um, fascinating. But I guess with that in mind, like how do you think that's reflected in the space that you work or what does that space look like?
1: So I work in um, a number of different spaces, actually, um, and so I'm quite peripatetic in in where I'm where I'm working. The kind of spaces that I'm working in, I have a workspace at home at the moment, which is where I'll do my practice work. Um, so I work on my own, and then I have uh, I'll have sort of assistants who might help me on a job by job basis. And you know, through COVID, people were working from home a lot, so I didn't um, I didn't have an office, a studio space at that point in time anyway. And so I haven't. I mean, I had one before. Um, so I haven't sort of like gone back to that. But but and then and then I'll work in the university, which is teaching work, and then I'll be out and about, as it were. Um, but I have now set up a or in the process of setting up a studio space in Folkestone in Kent on the south coast, um, and this is a kind of maker space that I'm setting up with an artist and a product designer. And we're setting up, setting up with a lot of uh, fabrication equipment and so on. And the idea is that I would, uh, f- firstly that is we'll see what emerges from our kind of collaboration of just setting up a space and starting to, to to work from there. And then for me it's also a space where I want to be able to start making things uh, which I haven't necessarily got the, sp- the space to make at the moment and to base, you know, my work. Um, so again, it's a kind of, quite a sort of peripatetic type of, of work set up, you know, it's in different locations and different things happen in different places.
0: Which is actually really exciting, I think. I mean, it complements the fact that you do lots of different things. But uh, yeah, I guess this folks on space sounds really like a, a kind of ne- a new chapter for what will be possible in your practice.
1: I think so, yeah, I think so. And that's what we're sort of um, hoping for. And there's there's lots of, um, yeah, there's lots of um, just being in another place, you know, outside of London, for example, um you, it, for in, initially, you sort of think, oh, it's quite useful because you can get you know space there and it's available and it's not as expensive London and blah 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 blah. And those are the kind of immediate reasons why you start thinking let's let's you know weigh up whether this is a good or a bad thing. And it takes forty five minutes on the train and so you do all the all the kind of maths and you think, okay, it works, thinking that I'll just carry on doing what I'm doing, but I have that space there. But then gradually, as we start to have conversations, uh, we start to find out that there's a there's a dynamic in that place as well that we can also start to become a part of. Uh, and that's quite interesting because there, it's a whole different set of issues going on. I mean, <clears throat> there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, there's kind of a, a, a sort of point of migration. There's a lot of inward migration coming in on the South Coast, for example. There's kind of refugee networks that are operating from there and are based there. Um, and there's a quite, quite a quite a sort of particular uh, set of social s- scenarios that, that I think we can start to um, work with as we start to to sort of be based there as well. So, yes, yeah, so it's quite quite exciting to see what will happen.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I guess like especially given how complex and multifaceted your practice is, um, I was just curious if there's an app or some piece of technology that you can't live without.
1: Um, I was going to say the weather app, but then I never check it enough. <laughs> That's why I always get caught out. Um, I think even
0: then, even if you did check it, it would probably be wrong. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's right, yeah. Um, the one that I, I suppose, okay, so I use um, the BBC radio app probably the most regularly. Um, so I do kind of listen to quite a lot of, of you know, not just news, but, you know, sort of documentaries and blah, blah, blah. And it's not like a plug for the BBC, it's just kind of, I suppose, their radio is a lot better than their television, I'll, put, I'll just say that. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, and I use uh, yeah uh, you know, various other ones as well. But
0: and is that do you listen to that mainly while working or while you're moving between things or both?
1: Kind of both, actually. So while working, what I find is that um, when I'm drawing, I can listen to stuff, uh, and and I can um, I can hear, and I think this is the case that while you're while you're you're drawing, uses a particular type of side of your brain where you can actually listen and take things in. But if I'm doing writing work or reading, I can't listen when I'm doing that. So so I do I do listen while drawing actually. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's nice. Um and if there was one technological device that you could invent, what would that be?
1: I think um maybe one of the things that I've sort of thought about recently a lot is that I've I found myself dreaming a lot lately. And I don't know whether that's to do with, you know, kind of like longer days and whatever and also having kind of a number of different dreams and that's what people do, you have different dreams through the night but then you can't remember which one it was where and then and then they're sometimes very interesting um, and perhaps very revealing about different things. So I think a device which you could record them, you know, like a kind of like a, like a hard drive or something, you could actually kind of record your dr- the dream and play it back in some form and then do what you like with it, you know, make drawings from it, analyse it. So on and so on, you know, so so that would be the device, I think.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I just heard a really scary story from my neighbors on the weekend about, I can't remember who it was, but somebody wanted to to remember their dreams. And so they tied like a, a stub of a pencil to their finger so that when they woke up they would like see that and then remember that they should write down their dream and write it down. But I was just like, if this was me, <laughs> right. I'd probably like rub my eye and like suddenly I'd lose an eye because yeah. I stabbed it with a pencil. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's it's probably not the right strategy. I need to wait for your technological yeah. device to be invented.
1: It's quite committed, committed to actually trying to re- remember them, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, And someone who obviously doesn't touch their face at all.
1: Mm. Mm.
0: <laughs> so in terms of um, your life right now, where do you live now?
1: I live in Bow in East London, E3, so near near Victoria Park.
0: Okay, Um, so that's also a nice leafy area. Nice and leafy
1: area, yeah. I mean, the park is nice and leafy. And actually, I mean, yeah, I mean, London is actually quite leafy. There's a a lot of parks and things like that around. And we're very lucky because we've got the park very close to us. And then we've got this Mile End Park, which runs down along the canal all the way down to Limehouse. So, you know, and then we've got the Olympic Park. So actually it's, although it's quite, you know, close in the city as it were, uh, it's very... Uh, accessible to green and leafy space. Yeah, which must be really nice. Mm.
0: And um, is there a hidden building or space that you would recommend to visit in your neighbourhood?
1: I would probably pick pick on some places around Whitechapel and I think maybe just because, uh, well, partly because it is an interesting area and also I, I worked on the Survey of London Projects, Histories of Whitechapel, so I kind of spent a lot of time There, one of the things that was particularly interesting to me is there was a synagogue. um, Well, there was a lot of synagogues all over Whitechapel in the sort of you know nineteenth end of the nineteenth century, and um, there's one uh, which is just south of Whitechapel Road called New Road Synagogue, and uh, it's recorded as having been demolished. Um, But we found it. We found the the the, the building that it was in, and it was now it was now being used as a uh, a clothing uh, warehouse type thing. And um, I, my colleague went, who was work on the project with us. He went inside, and he went into the loft space, and he kind of saw the the sort of synagogue as it used to be. It was it was even then it was a sort of adapted building anyway. But if you stand on Whitechapel Road and look through this kind of gap between buildings, you can see the sidewall of what was the original synagogue building. And I just think that's some, um, you know, it's just I just really kind of like like the fact that these fragments remain. Uh, and there are these kind of stories around them, and you know we had this story of one of the one of the people that we did the oral history with, who was one of the members of the synagogue, and he was talking about how he got married in there, and it was so narrow. Uh, because it was a f- adapted building, and they you know crammed everything in, and so on. It was so narrow; the aisle was so narrow that his wa- he had to walk down, and then his wife had to walk down behind him because they couldn't both walk side by side. Um, so it's just this kind of layering of you know personal s- memories and stories, and then fragments of the buildings that are left. Um, so you could go and stand on Whitechapel and look at that brick wall, if you like. That would be the thing to to wow. discover. <laughs>
0: um, oh, I think that's a great example, rather than um, a kind of building, uh, rather like a space that actually represents what's so special about that area. Like I love Whitechapel because it feels like there's so many different histories and stories and communities that kind of come together in this one place. And there's so many traces of all of these different pasts that you can find in the present. Um, I I think one year I taught a studio where we made, uh, it was at Oxford Brooks with a friend of mine, and we made all the students go on this Janet Cardiff walk from the Whitechapel Gallery onwards. And it was really interesting how much of this narrative that was like 20 years old already still worked, that you could time your walk and you'd see the right landmarks that she was referring to in her narrative at the right time. But then there was one bit of the walk where the area had developed that you just suddenly got lost and then had to like re-find your way. And uh, yeah, I think mm. it's such an amazing, it's an amazing kind of neighbourhood
1: yeah, to explore. Yeah, it still is. I mean, it, it's, so, it's sort of like, has, it's under, you know, threat as it were in, in ways that many parts of London are from this kind of expansion of the city. Um, but you know, it, it's held out pretty well, I think, despite all of that. And hopefully, it still will. Hopefully, there's enough of a kind of you know energy uh, and sort of centre to 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 what Whitechapel and the East End is that it will it will sort of maintain its kind of distinctiveness.
0: Um, yeah, I, w- I would hope so. Mm. I think, especially through the power of these communities that have like kind of really not just taken root there, but um, have contributed so much to what makes it such a special place. yeah. Um, so I guess what based on like you know you picked a wall as your favorite hidden space, what how would you answer the architect's most dreaded question what is your favorite building currently in existence?
1: Yeah, it is a dreaded question, isn't it? Um, uh, and I suppose I was thinking about why it's a dreaded question because and why I can't think of anything any favorite building and I think it's it's because different buildings or different spaces, uh, have different resonate in different ways for different reasons. So, you know, you, I think I like a, a number of you know, different buildings or, or places for a particular reason or for that particular place, I guess. Because um, I've, I've often been asked, like, you know, because I've done the kind of mosque work, like, what's your favourite mosque? And again, it's very difficult one <laughs> to kind of answer because different ones have different sort of functions. I suppose uh, for the purposes of of now, and since we're talking about the East End, I'll say um, the Huguenot Church on on Brick Lane, which is now the mosque. (laughs) Uh, And again, it's got those layers of history, so built in 1743 as a Huguenot church, and then it was a Methodist chapel, and then it was a synagogue, and then it was a mosque in 1976. And each change, I sort of worked out that every um, change happened after about 80 years. So So each use was there for about 80 years, and then it would become a new use. Um, so it's interesting to think, you know, according to that, uh, uh pattern, it would be about 2030 by the time the new use would, would happen. And it's sort of always, and whether it will or not, I don't know, but it's kind of interesting to think, well, I wonder what that would be. Like what would its new life kind of be? The nice thing about it, I think, is that it's, it's maintained all of its uses are main, have been sort of uh, places of worship, so it's continuously maintained this, its function as it were. Um, and they've all served the immediate kind of local community at that particular point in time. So it's it's very embedded uh, in, you know, what's happening in the area at that point in time.
0: Yeah, it's so fascinating how that architecture has been able to contain like a continuous use, but through different kind of ownership or different faiths, kind mm. of almost like passing the kind of baton forward onto the next um so, I'm really curious to, to, mm. to, to speculate on what that might be yeah. in 2030. That's fantastic. Um, and I guess if you could visit one piece of architecture that no longer exists, mm. like, you know, where we, going back to where we began with time travel, yeah. um, what would that be?
1: Um, I mean, it might be. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of some of the places in Iraq uh, uh, that may, I mean, I can't think of anything specific now, but the, some of the places that may have been. Um, you know, lost in, in the kind of conflict and things like that. Um, and, you know, in Syria and and thinking of kind of Palmyra and uh, places like that. So, um, yeah, maybe the, those kind of regions. I can't think of anything specific at this point.
0: Yeah, I had um, students last year who were working on projects in, in kind of conflict-torn areas and um, a lot of them, always focus on like the market hall or like the the kind of this like central like souk and spaces like that because although it's a market as like its main use there's so many other things happening mm, there and then mm. when those spaces are lost they're like incredibly important public spaces um, as well as commercial spaces and and kind of community spaces so yeah it was really interesting to think about how the what a lot of their projects have been looking at is like how collective memories can can start to re-describe those places, and that they can exist in new forms—sometimes digital forms, sometimes remembered forms, sometimes physical forms. But like maybe these fragments start to piece together to become a kind of new way to, to for that place to exist.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, as you to, as you're talking, it reminded me of um, and maybe this would be a place to go to in in um in, in uh, Morocco. There's a town called Volubilis, which is uh, in the kind of in west of uh, Fez, and it was the westernmost. City in the Roman Empire. Uh, it wasn't quite on the coast, but it was. It was kind of like in in westernly uh, sort of Morocco, and it's quite. Um, so it's you see, sort of parts of you know what's left of the city there. But you see, you know, parts of what was a house, uh, you know, a villa with uh, bits of mosaic floor left and so on. But you do quite clearly see, uh, you know, what was a high street and there were sort of these small shops and they're kind of like some of the the foundations of the shops remain and then at the end there was kind of an entrance gateway and you see parts of that that remain. So you you sort of see parts of this layout and uh, fragments of things which are left. And I think it would be, and then there's the temple, of course, and so on. And I think... I think I would like to walk around that town when it was in full swing, actually, because it's such it's such interesting and sophisticated urbanism, actually, you know, so, so, it's, so it's kind of careful uh, laying out and, and scale and kind of proportion that you can just get a sense of that. I think it would be really interesting to actually walk around it when it's when it's up and running. <laughs>
0: Um, so I guess thinking about, uh, ways to have these embodied journeys that we talked about earlier, if you could select one vehicle to travel around the world in, what do you think that would be?
1: Um, <clears throat> so not, uh, yeah, so it would be, it would be across the ground, I think. Um, and I think it might be a train of some sort, actually. I mean, I, uh, when, uh, I was just, I uh, just finished being student, actually, and w- there was a... It was part of the Erasmus program and it was a train. The whole architecture project uh, um, workshop was to a two-week train journey. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, and they had a train kitted out as a place where you could sleep and it had workspaces and it had kitchen and this and that and it basically traveled from Copenhagen up to the north of Norway and then kind of came back. And uh, it would stop at different places, and you'd sort of set up a kind of camp and so on. And I think that was um, that was a great sort of like experience actually. So I think probably you know great sort of and you know train travel is hugely kind of romantic, and it has a real uh, sort of like imagery to it. So I think um, probably a train would be the way to do it.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's pretty good a good way to see the see the world. Um, and you'd have to think about how to cross like seas mm, and oceans. Like, right, right. I once went on a train that like went on board a ferry. It was very oh. seamless. Yeah, um, okay. So that could be possible. Put
1: that on my list. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I to do. Yeah, I'm trying to remember where it was between. After I'll, I'll figure yeah, it out. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: I think going from like a, a vehicle that you'd love to travel the world through um, and then I guess something that you despise, is there a building material that you think is just terrible or is very ugly that you would never want to use or you think should just be removed from our vocabulary as architects?
1: Um, I think I'm a, I'm cautious about a lot of the cladding materials that are being used at the moment, actually. Um, and partly, yeah, long, long, long longevity, uh, you know, and the fact that there's so much kind of, you know, all these kind of fixings and there's all sorts of points of kind of failure, I suppose. And they don't have a track record, like, you know, those cladding materials haven't been used for 30 or 50 or 100 years. Um, I mean, I don't mean to sound like a kind of Luddite, um, but I, I yeah, and, and, and I've probably used some as well. But when I was doing the mosque on Hackney Road, for example, that was a, an option, was a sort of quite a thin stone type of cladding type material, like cast, which would be hollow in, inside. And eventually, you know, give it a lot of thought, looked at lots of different options and so on and so on. And then eventually we, we went for uh, an actual cast solid piece of stone. So it's very, you know, heavy and thick. Uh, material that that the facade is kind of built out of and I think it makes a difference there's something about the weight that has some kind of you know I can't put my finger on it and you know it's not a scientific sort of theory but there's something about the weight of a material and the kind of substance that a material is made of that has a has a gravity there's probably that probably is physics uh, somewhere in there Um, but I think it has an impact on how that Building is sort of perceived, or you know, I, I don't think that the building would be the same if it was a, a sort of a, a more of a cladding type thing that was used on it.
0: Yeah, and it, maybe it's a kind of psychological thing as well. Mm. But it kind of gives it a sense of permanence or mm. a kind of historical weight yeah. uh, or a, a kind of significance I think that so. is really important, especially for especially for communities that like often feel like they don't belong. Yeah. Um, to, yeah. ma- to make them feel rooted in a place probably feels really important. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that was a big part of the, the design was that it should look like a sort of block of almost stone that is sitting there and that has been there for a long time and it's been carved. Uh, so that was part of the thinking.
0: Yeah. So from community to culture, um, now we have like a fun set of questions about where you kind of recommend all the places and things that we should do in, uh, I guess, as a born and bred Londoner. Um, you can tell us like where are the top places we should visit. So starting with what is your favourite restaurant?
1: Um, right, so favourite restaurant, I suppose this is kind of the go-to restaurant where if I was going to wanted to eat out. Um, there is a uh, Iranian uh, restaurant just near us in my land. So if we're doing like, if we want to eat out or get a takeaway or something like that, that will be kind of the go-to place. Um and that's kind of quite, quite cute because it has like a, this veranda thing at the back that opens onto the park and so on. It's quite low key. So, you know, my, my kind of like favorite restaurant would be actually quite a sort of low key uh, uh, sort of space, um, but quite kind of cozy. So, and that's called Ariana and that's on End Road. So let's, let's say that for my favourite restaurant.
0: I went there recently for did the you? first time no and way. it was excellent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, fantastic. How did you end up there? Uh,
0: I went with my friend Taranj who's Iranian and she right. uh, ordered all this amazing stuff that I'd never tried oh. and I have an Iranian name so I was like kind of connecting with a culture that's not really mine but somehow has I've like adopted. Right,
1: so. right, right. Oh, fantastic. And we went. We were there when the guy first set it up, you know, so we amazing. sort of s- saw it from the start as it were and um, yeah, so it's kind of, an, it's nice. it's nice to see that it's been successful and has, you know, sort of flourished and sort of you know main, is still there after you know I know mean, ten plus years kind of thing. So yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I have to go back. Mm,
1: um, I come with you. So yeah.
0: Um, and what would you consider to be your perfect meal?
1: Um, so my wife often makes fun of me about this because um, <clears throat> regardless of how elaborate and sophisticated m- the meals that I will be fed. In many, you know, I'm very lucky, fortunate that I get fed good meals here and there and all over the place by various people. Um, I'll always sort of revert back to the kind of food that I ate at home when I was a kid, actually. And I suppose that's what people kind of do comfort food. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Which was, you know, different types of uh, a sort of curry and rice, basically, is probably what I'd have to you know. <laughs> is there on. any particular
0: curry that you would?
1: Well, there was one that my dad used to make, which was, um, with tomato. Um, so it was like a kind of very, the tomato's really, really cooked a lot. Uh, and the kind of curry is then, and it's meat, but it could be, I suppose, anything. And, and yeah, so that was probably, and then, you know, dal, I suppose. And yeah, so dal, the curry and rice.
0: Yeah, I think I spent most of like lockdown just making insane amounts of dal. But then as like <laughs> one person took like multiple like days to finish eating. That's then right. I'd have to have like a long break and then I'd start all over again. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, make sure there's a, there's a stock of it. Yeah. Yeah, nothing
0: yeah. beats like dal and rice and some pickles. So. Mm,
1: mm, mm. Yeah, a char. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the ultimate comfort food. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Food.
0: And uh, what was the last cultural event that you attended, which can include like going to the theatre or cinema and film?
1: So about three weeks ago, uh, we went to see the musical Hamilton. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, in Victoria. And it was, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a fantastic show. And it's actually the second time I've seen it, I have to say. Uh, first time was like before lockdown and stuff and that time when I went to see it first I had no idea what it was and just that somebody like my, my sister-in-law it was like family some members of my family were getting my sister in had the spare ticket and she was like okay do you want to I was like fine whatever and I went along and then I was obviously thinking wow firstly I thought when it started initially and I knew nothing about it I thought is this whole thing going to be in song, i.e., is it a musical? And then I thought, I don't go to musicals. <laughs> but then I thought, wow, this is actually pretty, you know, pretty amazing. And obviously, you know, carried me along. We got the soundtrack, obviously. The kids started listening to the soundtrack, you know, and they were into the soundtrack straight away. And they were too young to go and see it um then, but they loved the music. Uh, it's just that sort of thing that, that, that kids can get into, I think, and the story. And so obviously they learn about kind of American history and in War of Independence through Hamilton. Um, and then eventually my niece, uh, so their cousin, bought them tickets for the play, you know, once lockdown's over, blah, blah, blah. So we all went to see Hamilton about three weeks ago. So for the kids, it was like this amazing kind of like connection of this music that they'd been listening to for years. Uh, and seeing the actual thing enacted. So I think I enjoyed I almost enjoyed the fact that they were seeing it more than more than sort of, you know, seeing the play itself
0: yeah it's kind of interesting to go back to see something again because you pick out details you didn't the first time but I guess also experiencing it through your kids eyes probably must have been a whole different experience as well yeah
1: yeah, absolutely um, yeah.
0: and was it still packed because I, I it's went still packed yeah. I went a while ago and it was like that was when an, it was quite difficult to get tickets
1: yeah yeah, no, it's, it still sold out I mean it took it was a sort of five month wait to get to see it so she bought the tickets a number of months ago and then so it's still a long you know, lead in time yeah. to see was that it,
0: the it, first time you had been in a theater since COVID
1: yeah yeah, absolutely. So that's all. That's all a bit weird as, as well, isn't it? Being in a kind of crammed sort of auditorium and sitting closely next to people and so on. So yeah, so it's all yeah. Yeah,
0: all all part of the experience.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: So if you could inhabit one film, which would it be?
1: Um, so that again will change, depending on uh, where I am at in a particular point in time. I guess. But right um, now it's well there. i say so right now and i only say this because i just have been looking for this film uh where i can see it again because i saw it uh it, when it first came out in the kind of 90s and there's a film by mike lee and it's called naked and it's about this guy from manchester who basically wanders around london through the night and has and it's qu- and has quite a you know sort of difficult set of experiences and it it kind of experiences the city in its after hours Uh, and it's quite yeah there's sort of like it's Mike Lee film so there's kind of you know it's kind of very real quite gritty and quite difficult at times and some of the people that he meets and the relationships and the conversations but I remember the kind of uh sort of existentialness of that film at the time that I saw it and I haven't seen it since and I've sort of Want to, I was just recently thinking I want to try and find it again. So I watched and I found a trailer of it. So I got off, I re- remembered it. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe not so much want to inhabit, but but, uh, yeah, that's, that's the one that I sort of like, maybe I'd be there in some form uh, as one of the people that he might come across in his night journey through London.
0: Yeah, there's something really special about, um, special and scary, I guess, about the city at night and, um, and I guess also how that's really changed over time, especially in london, um mm. and how you know, in the past, people didn't sleep through the night. they had like almost like two sleeps, and in between, the city became this really active place. Um and there's this book by Matthew Beaumont called Night Walking." It's is really about like the different groups of people and the different parts of the city that got activated at night, which mm. your, your film made me really think about.
1: Yeah, so. absolutely. And you do that, you know, you do that less as you kind of get older and then have kids and then, you know, have, a, have to get up in the morning to go to work and blah, blah, blah. So you start, you do, but as when you're younger, you know, in your sort of whatever, through, through twenties and so on, you do, do, do those kind of like night walks for whatever reasons. And it is a very different kind of space. And then, you know, recent, more recent, you're through, you know, more recent life, I suppose you. There are times where you're kind of awake at, or out at sort of early hours of the morning for whatever reason, and it's and it's 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 it is a very different you know uh, atmosphere and place actually. And sometimes I've thought, you know, people talk about they need to go to you know kind of Mauritius or they need to sort of spend six months on a sort of island somewhere because you need to get out of your headspace and find somewhere else to be and blah blah blah, which is fine but I also think well actually you just need to walk around your street at four o'clock in the morning and you'll be in that different place that you're seeking and <laughs> you know
0: yeah it's, it's sometimes like a change of context can be on your like on your front doorstep it doesn't mm. have to be like miles and miles away and it's a kind of interesting link to what we talked about earlier in terms of an embodied journey but just at a different time of day mm. or a, seeing a city anew and so I guess from film to what is your favorite TV show?:
1: um, again, will change, depending on last thing I've watched, probably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so What do you think was the last thing you watched?:
1: The last sort of series that I watched was actually this one called "Caliphate," which was a Swedish uh, um, drama series about um, some kids who went to uh, Syria you know, joined uh, Islamic State and went through from the, the, the kind of Swedish uh, immigrant, uh, uh, ch- I mean, descendants of second generation um, uh, children who'd um, sort of got involved in something and gone there. And so, sort of, you know, then they had to come back and blah, 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 this kind of drama. And it was um, very well done, actually, very well made. I mean, on the one hand, one could say, you know, it's a, the story is a bit of a cliche. You know, we all kind of know that. That these sort of things have happened, blah blah blah, but actually, it was very um, thought provoking and very well, kind of like performed, I suppose. Um, and that was, you know, Netflix. So okay. you can, yeah. I'll,
0: I'll have to check them out. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I suppose that's the kind of latest thing that I've watched. Yeah.
0: yeah. So this, the next question is a bit of a tricky one. So, do you remember the first album you ever bought, or what was a kind of really important album to you growing up that you listened to over and over again?
1: Well, the first song that I ever liked, I remember liking, and I was maybe, I don't know, four ish or five ish, was um, a song by ABBA. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Are you going to tell us which song?
1: I can't remember the name. Uh, it's about this boy called Angelo. I can't remember, do you, I don't know if you know any ABBA songs, but. Um, but um yeah we'll we'll have a we'll have a search for it, but that was the first uh, song that i I thought, wow, that I and mean, we, we used to have a little a turntable and it was a seven inch record, and I remember putting that on again and again as a kind of a little kid and being swept away, obviously you know <laughs> <laughs> as you, as you are, so that must have set a pattern for you know things that happened. Do you ever still listen to it now? No, I haven't had it for a long time. <laughs>
0: Maybe you'll have to go home tonight (laughs) and listen to
1: it. Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah, I mean, album, um, I mean, I was, you know, kind of into U2 as a teenager and that kind of stuff. So, yeah.
0: And what musician do you secretly love but are embarrassed to admit it until now?
1: I guess I'll have to say, having answered the, the earlier question about the favorite song or first song, uh, is uh, I'll, I'll say ABBA because you know every now and then I do probably put ABBA Gold on, you know, find it on Spotify and you know, dry. It's good for driving and um, and I I kind of enjoy the film Mamma Mia. Actually, you know, <laughs> that's
0: <laughs> so, a really good embarrassing thing to admit. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, so yeah, let's go for Isn't ABBA. there a sequel? I don't know. I'm not that into it. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: Just checking. Yeah,
1: You tell me. <laughs> I don't
0: know. I, assume, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought there was. but <laughs> yeah. um, So I guess what's your favorite album now then?
1: So favorite changes, yeah. depending on what I'm kind of listening to at any particular point in time. But I think recently what I've been listening to is um, some of the music or well, it's kind of um, hip hop uh, by Riz Ahmed, who's the actor. Uh, and also i think you know pr- prior to being a famous actor anyway who's kind of making music so i've been listening to some of his um stuff which is f- just a few years old now as well that's been quite interesting and you know enjoy listening to that But it's, it does vary so i've also got um kind of been listening to this band called drugstore i don't know if you kind of heard of them they're sort of like i suppose you call them an indie kind of band and um the cure here and there was kind of comes up again although i've I've yeah, continuously every now and then listen to them and that's again, again from my sort of teenage days. Um, so yeah, kind of moves around depending on what things pop up on on Spotify and that kind of stuff as well.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean I I think um, Riz Ahmed is someone I've listened to a lot uh, and especially over the last few years, especially because I think it's really interesting that he's made music about how it feels to not belong or to still get asked questions like where are you from? that, you know, can't be answered in simple terms. And I just think someone putting a voice to these things that have kind of bothered me for so long Mm. and and making it public, using that platform to make it public, but also making it something you can listen to over and over again, it felt really important. So, um, which I think is a really interesting um, connection to, I guess, thinking of like kind of political issues and and issues of belonging. And, you know, you mentioned to me previously that uh, you... I think you said that the Bosnian War was a kind of formative experience for you because of just like witnessing this kind of ethnic violence, or you know, these the problems that comes out of national a sense of nationalism. And um, I guess it would be really interesting to hear you reflect on on that and how that's shaped maybe the way you see the world now. But also, it feels very relevant to lots of things that are happening kind of in South Asia, but also kind of all over the world, or the rise of nationalism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the Bosnian War came at a time, and we're talking now about 1992, well, 1991 really, end of 91, and then 92 through till 95 uh, or 96, I think, when the final agreement was, if I remember correctly. But um, it came; it was sort of the first conflict where uh, the the stability of the idea of the nation state as we had were coming to understand it by the kind of 90s and the idea of sort of national identities was, was, uh, was unravelling. I mean, it probably started to unravel a little bit before that. But the war was really uh, the kind of expression um, of that uh, falling apart of certain certainties. And um, I went to Croatia when the war was going on in Bosnia and I went with an aid convoy from here, from London. And we drove down, we used to drive down there a few times uh, and taking stuff from here to um, sort of refugee camps in in Croatia. So these Bosnians who had left Bosnia, displaced people, uh, and they were living in in these camps and then we would sort of um be taking stuff there and we're living in the town and then you know sort of just meeting people and getting a sense of what was what what people were experiencing and then when the war had had finished so in in ninety five uh or 9596 I went to Sarajevo uh, and I spent a bit of time there I worked there for a little bit and this was kind of in the immediate uh, aftermath of the war. Uh, and this was, you know, Sarajevo had been under siege for three and a half years and it was a, quite a sort of destroyed uh, city. And it was it was a city and a country that was having to rebuild itself in a new form. And one of the things that I quite quickly realised is that um, the way in which the kind of Western narrative about the war in Bosnia and former Yugoslavia was that this was a kind of uh, uh, intractable inter-ethnic conflict that was always there um and when i as i start to read more about it and understand the place more and 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 also be there and meet people there um realizing you know i sort of thought actually you know the these kind of interethnic conflicts are are, are manufactured as much as as much as anything really uh and they're quite carefully sort of constructed and manufactured uh by you know political and uh, various agendas um they don't just happen and it was it was something that i found unfathomable and still do how people who had lived next to each other, you know, kind of intermarried and, and lived side by side could you know, fight each other and, and, and kind of kill each other. And there's so many stories in, in Bosnia of this kind of communal intercommunal violence. Um, you know, somebody would be like, you know, the the the, the soldiers who came and burnt down their house were were, were kids in the school that the person taught in and things like that you know this kind of embeddedness that people had and how can it how can it be that that can turn into this kind of uh sort of violence but and trying to understand on the one hand i suppose the human condition uh but also you know that's a big thing to try and understand uh but 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 it's not just for me it, coming to the conclusion i suppose that it's not actually just the human condition uh, it's not it's not it's not enough to be able to say this is what human beings are like it's more that these scenarios are fa- are constructed you know we we have control uh individually and collectively over whether these things how these things play out um so you know when you see so that kind of was quite a strong impression on me and also when i spent time in bosnia Realizing that actually, you know, Bosnia didn't have a a kind of nationalist agenda in the way that other, the other kind of former Yugoslav states kind of. Did you know Croatia and Serbia, in particular, actually did have a stronger kind of nationalist agenda behind at that point in time that was driving uh, their, their um, driving their uh, sort of the war. Uh, and, and you know, Bosnia didn't actually come at it with that kind of strong sense of national. It was much more a kind of multi-ethnic, plural uh, sort of state that it wanted to be. And in fact, you know, the kind of general who was defending Sarajevo was in fact a Serb. So it's not. So you know, within the kind of Within these kind of big categories, there are many people who are situating themselves against what's going on as well, and within what's happening, and there are all sorts of other kinds of relationships and networks that people are trying to sort of forge. And we know we hear that from, you know, World War Two and so on and so on. But that's also very much in our in our kind of lifetimes. So that was quite a strong sort of impression on me. You know, I was in my early twenties, so it's the sort of thing that really um just form your kind of view of the world. I, I think.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's it's kind of tragic in that uh, it almost feels like utopian hearing you describe it as this kind of like multi-ethnic place that was really all these people living in relative harmony alongside each other. But then maybe because of their um, because they kind of resisted those forces of classification to be like definitively one thing, Mm. that's where kind of conflict came through these outside forces acting on it as a place, which I feel like is something that's happening more and more today, like our need to define and label everything means that so much conflict is born out of it mm. through kind of claiming territory or mm. needing to be one thing or the other.
1: It, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very, you know, I do think of what I saw in Bosnia when we see similar sort of like, um, um uh, we, we see the kind of foothills of these things happening in, in here in England, for example. So, you know, this kind of, victimization of of uh, refugees and migrants and these kind of construction of a kind of this othering that we see going on here is a highly dangerous process and we sort of seem to think that oh you know that we have a few kind of right wingers and you know these people are always going to say this and that and blah 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 but actually this is you know these kind of acts are on the trajectories towards what does end up as as communal violence actually and i'd say that not being alarmist but i think from what i understand of historical processes uh, and i think we have to be very aware of that i don't think we necessarily are because we kind of brush a lot of things off because things kind of here you know sort of work and everything's kind of okay and everything's fine but actually there are these undercurrents which are very dangerous uh and that's what Rizame does bring out in his particularly in his film the Long goodbye. That's the film, isn't it? Yeah, which is about this these uh, uh, you know kind of right hard right violence on kind of everyday suburban town in England sort of thing. And you might look at it and think like oh, that's a bit far fetched, but actually I think he's making quite a important point, uh, which is that what we are doing now, the way the conditions that we're sort of we're allowing to take place now in this country, in the US, in you know in India as well, um, in many countries around the world uh it, 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 these are sort of dangerous dangerous environments that we're allowing to sort of uh, be there we you know i think we do need to um have uh, and cultivate and maintain a, a sense of collectiveness in su- at some level and collective identities and shared values and and you know existences at some level and we probably need to work on that a lot more at this point in time because of this Uh, fragmentation, which, you know, technology is also driving uh, as well. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely with these filter bubbles and like the algorithms preventing us from witnessing people who have an opinion different to our own. So I guess like on that note, if there was one ill of the world that you could vanish, what would it be?
1: Mm, That's a good next question to ask. (laughs) I haven't gone on and on about all that.
0: (laughs) No, because I guess you were talking about the importance of preserving community and this collective the sense of, of being part of something bigger mm. than you and also being able to compromise or being able to be in conversation with people who think differently to you without it necessarily leading to conflict. And I feel like we're getting less equipped to do that rather than more equipped to mm. do that because we're so used to just have agreeing or flattening out discomfort. So what do you think is an, an ill or a way to, to kind of maybe eradicate that inability?
1: I suppose, uh, you know, in that vein, it might be, it might be the way in which we are becoming, uh, high, f- fragmented, uh, you know, in, in living in very different experiences and, and groups and enclaves. And maybe it would be, I mean, I know we need them for all sorts of, you know, practical things, but maybe it would be this kind of algorithmic, uh, process that goes on that, that that sends us only towards particular things actually. Uh, and it might not necessarily be an ill, but um, but maybe there's something happening through that that is that is not allowing us to to connect. You know, people talk about before streaming and you know cable was TV and people had you can watch whatever channel, you can watch your specific channels. People talk about the way in which when there were four channels, People used to watch the same television programs <laughs> and, and, you know, kids in school would have watched, you know, they, they used to have some kind of pro- programs um, specifically for the Asian community, like on BBC Two on a Sunday morning and stuff like that. And then kids were going to school and their friends had watched it because there was kind of like nothing else to watch and so on. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe there's something about the kind of, yeah, I can't quite put my finger on what the ill is, but, but something that drives that.
0: that that yeah maybe it's like i guess something to do with technology and how it's given us all this choice which we often Mm. see as a positive but actually through that choice it's actually created a lot of divisions whether it's through how through our data we're getting more segmented and siloed but also how we lose that kind of collective experience or shared experience um Actually, weirdly, I'm doing this project for a South Asia gallery in Manchester and all of the collectives that are co-curating that talk about that exact experience you just mentioned on Mm -hmm. Sunday mornings, watching TV with their family Mm. and how for the family, for the parents, it was a way to connect to a homeland that they'd left behind. But for the children who hadn't had a chance to access or visit that homeland, it was a way to actually connect to their identity. Mm. But then the next day in the school playground, like all your friends who weren't South Asian had watched that same movie Mm. or TV show. and they uh, were able to talk about that as well. Whereas now it's very much seen as something niche that mm. only a certain group of people would watch rather than everybody. So
1: Yeah, you have to go out and seek it for a particular kind of reason, I suppose, don't you? Yeah. yeah.
0: No, I think that's a really great, um, a great way to think about how to uh, celebrate difference by maybe like not, uh, I guess, not siloing people so much with so much choice. Um, mm. then that you never really have the same experience as somebody yeah else.
1: yeah yeah or maybe we need to invent maybe you know the the the, 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 the technology to, to invent is something that kind of by by cuts across those kind of separatenesses that are being created so maybe that's some yeah maybe it's about inventing something to come back to that other question but yeah
0: so the final section of questions is a quick fire round and uh, the point of it is that you don't think too much about the answer and you just tell us what you're, the first thing that comes to your mind
1: okay <laughs> So to start, but I won't with... look at them I won't look at the questions, yet. Yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly so to start with, what's your favourite colour? maroon great one what's your favourite season? spring do you have a guilty pleasure?
1: Mm, chocolate
0: yeah, it's a good one I like chocolate. Uh, what is your most prized possession?
1: My bicycle. What kind? It's a Condor, which is a uh, hand-built bike, which is made in Italy, but it's the it's sort of sold made. The, the, the shop is here in, in Holborn.
0: Nice. And what was your first experience of the AA?
1: I must have come to a lecture here uh, many many years ago, or come, came to the bookshop here many many years ago.
0: Nice. I think the bookshop is you. Uh, well, the bookshop or the lecture hall is usually somebody's first impression of the yeah, AA or maybe yeah. the bar. And could you describe the AA in one word?
1: Curious. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably what I'd say.
0: Well, yeah, so we've kind of like started on the steps of number 36 and now we're kind of <laughs> ending with describing the AA as a curious place, mm-hmm. which is probably its best definition.
1: Right.
0: So uh, thank you so much. Thank and uh, It's been great to get to chat to you today.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. Lovely to talk. Thanks for listening to this episode. Air AA podcasts are developed, recorded, mixed and edited by the Architectural Association from our home on Bedford Square in central London. To find more episodes, view the show notes and explore other Air AA series, visit air.aaschool.ac.uk.